Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. All you road to growth listeners, today I have Hayato Hori. Wait, did I say that right? Yeah, you said it right. <laughs> man, man, I'm old, man. Uh, we talked about it before we get on mic and tried it a couple times. But I guess third time is charm, so fantastic. Uh, so you're the owner of Rocket Offer? Yep, that's correct. Okay. Now, being in the real estate field, I, I kind of sometimes will get real estate stuff in there, and I kind of dive deeper a little more so and have a little background with this right here. So I'd love to get kind of more of an idea of it. Investor, uh, brand out there, someone's looking to sell their property, cash offer, you facilitate that or your company does and then get out to different investors? That's exactly right. Yeah, we so we speak with sellers, we get them on the contract, and then we go ahead to our investors who we work with, and we say, hey, we got this property under contract, would you like it? And we put our assignment fee in the middle, that's what we take home. And then from there, our investors can go ahead and fix and flip it, burr it, or buy and hold it, whatever they please do. So do you have a background in, in investing, or your background in, um, SEO, do you have a background? What I mean, what was your background to, to bring you to this platform? Yeah, that's a great question. So about a year and nine months ago, that's kind of when we started this company. Before that, I was working a W2 job and then I was doing a bunch of other side hustles. So I ran a digital marketing agency before. I did some drop shipping. I was heavily into the e-commerce space. Uh, did a lot of retail arbitrage and everything. So I wasn't really into that retail, you know, real estate industry. I wasn't really heavily involved. And so I bought my first rental property like right out of college. And from there, I saw the power of real estate investing. Uh, and my roommate at that time, he had a turnkey company or he has a turnkey company. And I saw him kind of grow his real estate portfolio and also helped investors get some uh, real estate. And so I was like, yeah, I love real estate. Let me see what I can go ahead and do. And once we, once I started speaking with him and I was like, hey, what's like the biggest challenge that you kind of faced? Uh, he mentioned that it was hard to find good deals on a consistent basis. And a lot of times when working with wholesalers, they're not the most transparent or it's not the most easy transactions. And so that's when I was like, okay, let's see if we can change that and see if we can do it better. And so we started a year and nine months ago, uh, you know, doing zero deals a month. And then now we're at a point where we're doing about 15 to 20 deals a month. And it's thanks to our investors. And also uh, we've scaled up a lot in terms of systems and processes to get there. So a couple of things. I mean, first off, the I mean, the words we used are so powerful. You used uh, a turnkey business instead mm -hmm. of, I mean, one of the I think, popular things is a flipper, right? So flipper is mm -hmm. probably like a burn and turn. Turnkey is you're making the thing look look pretty look beautiful kind of thing. Yeah. so it's funny the words we use i think in our, our daily life some some can be very positive some can be very negative so i just had to bring that up right there yeah uh, <laughs> so talking about and then wholesaler i mean for people listening right now it goes back to the original idea of kind of what we already talked about mm -hmm. was finding properties getting under contract and then um transitioning them over to uh, a turnkey i guess investor as uh as you would say yeah. So initially when we started, uh, we took that opportunity to be like, Hey, what kind of properties are you looking for? Uh, what's your buy box? And then we started there. And so we knew exactly what we need to get under contract for them to go ahead and 
purchase. And then we kind of grew out from there. So we have a lot of retail investors that we work with. So I'm currently here in California. My company sources properties in the Midwest area, like Cleveland, Ohio, Memphis, Tennessee, St. Louis, Missouri, and Detroit, Michigan. Those are four core markets that we're currently in. And so it's a lot cheaper to invest in real estate there as well. So in LA, like it's super expensive. You won't find anything below like $750,000, right? <laughs> and so it's really tough to find good cash flowing properties and you're really banking on appreciation. And so we, I, I personally wanted to find like cash flowing and also appreciating properties that I can afford. And the answer to that was the Midwest. And so what we recently, what we started to do was a lot of our investors, not just that turnkey company, but a lot of investors came up to us in these expensive markets like LA, New York, Chicago, and they said, hey, I wanna buy in the Midwest too, but I just don't have anyone there. And so that's when we started introducing people to like property management companies, insurance mm -hmm. companies, lenders, and even contractors if they need it. Uh, we always ask our investors to do their due diligence, but that's something that we can also provide them. And because everyone's buying virtually now, uh, we started doing inspection reports and doing inspections with third-party inspectors so that mm -hmm. they can go ahead and do a report and the investors will have a full transparent view of the property without ever having to go there. So there'll be pictures and walkthrough videos as well. Oh, wow. So let's, let's walk, walk through your journey. So you, where you grow up, uh, I know you're currently in California. Are you originally from California? No, uh, I was born in Japan. So I'm Japanese and I was raised there until I was five. And then I grew up in Singapore pretty much in my entire life. And I was there for about 13 years. And then once I turned 18, I came here for university. So I've just been jumping around everywhere. Uh, a little bit of a culture shock when I came here first, like the portion sizes were huge. I couldn't even eat half like a Chipotle burrito, but now I can eat like two, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what do you, and, and you, so you did end up going to college in California? Yeah. Yeah. I went okay. to a university called LMU. Okay. So what, what do you perceive the differences from uh, going to school in Japan and going overseas compared to the U.S., you see differences in their schooling style. I know it's different time periods of your life. Yeah, was there similarities, differences? Uh, it's yeah, it's quite different. It in Asia, it's very academics focused. Like people after school would go to another school to get ahead in their normal school work. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's very, very academic, academic focused. And so I know growing up as a kid, I was like, man, I need good grades or otherwise I'm not going to amount to anything. Like you need to be like, you need at least like a three, five GPA to be considered like on a path to success. So that's the kind of environment that I grew up in. But then coming up, coming here in the U S I've met a bunch of people who were like high school graduates or people who never went to college at all. And they were millionaires and they were making wealth. And based on everyone that I've talked to, those people were always somewhat invested in real estate. And that's when I was like, all right, that's the industry I need to go in. <laughs> it, it, so what brought you to uh, California and U.S.? So 
they actually came to my high school, um, the university I went to. One of their like recruiters kind of came and presented uh, the university and everything. And I love the idea of LA. I mean, the beach is right there. It's super nice. Can't beat the California weather. And so I initially didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't even know if I wanted my own business or anything. But then once I moved here, I saw so many people in LA own their own businesses like i would be playing soccer just down the street and i was like how do these guys like 30 40 years old like play soccer at like 11 a.m uh <laughs> when i can play I, i'm in college so i can but these guys i don't know what they're doing and when i talked to them those guys either had their own business or they were invested in things and so that's what kind of what opened my eyes up to and i always wanted to come i always knew i wanted to come to the states to study not really in Asia, because I think it's more relationship based here. Um, and I, I felt that uh, I could do better in the States than in Asia. What were your uh, parents feedback on transitioning from uh, Singapore to uh, US? Uh, so they went to college here in the States as well. I mean, they're both Japanese, but for them, it was, it's still relatively new. Like I applied to college all on my own. I took the SATs on my own. I didn't really know what, you know, how to go about it really, but uh, I kind of figured it out on my own and everything. But for them, they knew that I wanted to go to an American university because I went to an American high school. So everyone was going to the States for university. And so for me, it was kind of natural that I went that path. And my parents too, it, they kind of expected me to go that way. What's the difference between an American high school to, I guess, a, a regular Singapore high school? Uh, so regular Singapore high school, it's it's quite different. Uh, it's more British based. So Singapore was like occupied by uh, the Britons, uh, British people in, in back in the day. And so the education system in Singapore is mainly based in like the international Britain um, kind of system. So it's a little bit different from the American AP uh, education system. And uh, it's very, again, Singapore, a lot of Asia, it's very academic focused. And so in Singapore, especially like if a lot of the kids in those public schools by 13, your destiny's kind of written out for you. Like you have a path that you go to if you excel in academics, then you have a path that you go to if you don't. And your kind of career choices become limited as you go down that path. So it's pretty crazy. Hmm. How kind of young of an age do you have to kind of choose that path? Around like eight, uh, 13 is okay. how young in Singapore, which is pretty crazy to me. Um, yeah. Cause you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do until I even got in college. So yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you still keep in contact with people? I mean, I guess the high school you went to was uh, American based, but the, for other schools, did you keep in contact with a lot of people from, I guess, your community? Yeah, I keep in touch with a lot of people from Singapore that I, you know, from my high school, from people I met in middle school too. Uh, mostly my close group of friends in high school, I do keep in touch with them a lot still. I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious to see how they've, because I, I had someone on here the other day um, from Scotland and a similar kind of mindset, like, right, where you mm -hmm. choose your, what your path you're going to go through. And they use it almost as a negative idea of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, down that path, it basically corporations, 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 
Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, it's basically even perceived as a corporation, I guess the terminology of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you talk to a lot of people that are kind of finding themselves now if they've had regrets of kind of the path they're going or choosing what they learned or anything like that? Uh, yeah. So, you, I mean, that's exactly right. They corporations and in, in Asia, typically like you're, you're getting good grades to go to a big company. That's everyone's dream. That's the parent's dream. That's what everyone wants to do. And that's what everyone's working towards. I was a little bit different. I knew I didn't want to work at a company for like 30 plus years. I saw my dad do it. He, you know, he's definitely above maybe middle class, I would say, um, in terms of what he makes and everything. But even then you, I didn't see the freedom that you can get as an entrepreneur. And so for me, I would always pick the route to go be a business owner, but a lot of people that maybe are back in Singapore, but they still have that mindset that, you know, it's too risky to go into business by yourself or it's too risky to start something. And it's just safer to go into a company. But I kind of think a little bit differently where I think it's actually more risky to stay in a company when they can fire any fire you anytime they want. But if you start your own thing, you can kind of choose your destiny. And as long as you're hustling and working hard and making sure that you're, you know, you're, you're refining everything that you do, you're good, you're getting better at sales every day. I think you can create kind of your destiny rather than the corporation telling you, Hey, you know, I'm sorry, you can't be here anymore. Did, did your father give you insight on that? I mean, over his 30 years in the business? Uh, he wanted me to kind of, he wanted me to become a diplomat. So kind of, uh, going around the country and, and kind of representing Japan, uh, you know, making big relationships there. I wasn't, I'm not really into politics. I'm not too big on it. So it's not something that I really wanted to do. And seeing my dad, like he was, he's an expat, so he would travel a lot. And that's kind of why I, I hopped around in different areas. I lived in Vietnam for like two years as well. Uh, I traveled most of, South, most of Southeast Asia, a lot of Asia in general, um, and a good amount of other parts of the world too. So that's, I, that's kind of where I love traveling, but I saw my dad, you know, flying into different areas every two weeks or so. And I, I would see him maybe seven days out of the month. So I saw how busy he was. He wasn't able to kind of be like, Hey, I'm just going to take this time off and then kind of do this and this. And so, uh, that's where I wanted to change, um, my lifestyle a little bit. And so I guess I went back to the idea that you originally talked about that you saw the freedom in people either own their own business or real estate, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't really understand that concept until I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And I was reading that book and it kind of blew my mind and really changed my mindset because initially I was like, okay, I'm just going to work, uh, how, you know, whatever job that I would love, I'm just going to continue to save, 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 save. And then once I'm 60, 65, my goal is to save maybe a few million dollars and then I can retire off that. But then I read that book and really my mindset shifted from saving money and investing on for, you know, when I'm 65 and saving a few million to getting cash flow where it will exceed my expenses and then I will become financially free then. And that made so much more sense to me than saving a few million because A, it seems a lot easier and I'm kind of lazy. So I love doing whatever's easy, right? 
And then two, I think building that cash flow is much easier than saving a few million on your own because you can also leverage the bank's money if you're in real estate to go ahead and do that. So you, you have the idea, you have the mindset now, and then where do you take the next step of, of building this platform? Yeah. So for me, I was like, okay, now I have a little bit of knowledge about real estate. I bought my first property. I just, the first property I bought, I just wanted to see if it works and how it worked. So when I bought it, I mean, I barely knew how to run the numbers. I kind of understood it. Um, I knew that it was going to be a good property. I knew it was tenanted. I had a property manager that I could trust and take care of the property. So I was like, there's really not much of a risk. And really, if I lost all this money, I'm young, whatever, like I'll figure it out. And when I bought it, I saw the cash flow. I saw money coming in every single month in rent. I was like, dude, this works. And it's really not, not that hard. <laughs> so that's when I was like, okay, I need to grow my rental portfolio. I'm going to grow it as much as I can. And then a lot of investors were like, how are you finding these deals or where do you find these deals? And then, so that's when I was like, Hey, rocket offer can help too. We source off market deals in the Midwest and that's where I invest as well. And so I had people boots on the ground there that I could introduce as well. Well, Let's go back to that original question then when, I mean, cause you got in the business of real estate in your first investment, was your first investment off market then, or did your property manager find it, or how did you come across that first investment? The first investment, I actually bought it from my roommate who had that turnkey company. So everything was renovated for me. That's how, that's how I knew there was no maintenance to be done. Uh, the property management was introduced to me. Um, I didn't have to take care the, the lending was already all good and set because they can introduce you to financing as well. So really, I, I trusted him. Uh, I, I saw the numbers that all made sense to me. Uh, and that's when I decided I'll pull the trigger. You know, I, I'll put, I saved up just enough for that turnkey property, which is about like fifteen to $20,000 um, doing all these side hustles. And I was like, you know, if I lost that all, if I lost all my down payment, I'll still be okay. Like I can get that back. It's okay. Right. I'll figure it out. So was that first property, where was that located, that first investment for you? That one's in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. So were you living currently in Memphis, Tennessee, or was your roommate, They were. he was just doing renovations in Memphis, Tennessee? Yeah. So we were both in California. I'm in Long Beach, California currently, but back then I was living in LA with him. Uh, and he owned a turnkey company and he would operate out in the Midwest as well. So he had contractors that would renovate the property, make it all look good, put a tenant in there, and then I was, and then he would sell it to investors who want cash flow. Okay, so he so he had kind of the the platform, and he basically opened your eyes to I guess real estate. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, and now you see the the positivity of what you can do, what you can accomplish with real estate. And then mm -hmm. when you start getting to the realization, or at least understanding of how to find. Um, homeowners that wanted to sell. Yeah. So when we first started the wholesaling journey, I really had no clue what to do. I was looking up things on YouTube. I would call other wholesalers and kind of be like, Hey, what do you guys do to get, you know, your lists and everything. And initially I just threw things at the wall to see what stuck. And I did so I had a W-2 income then, and I had to hire 
people to cold call for me in the morning. So I would do it initially, but then I would create a script based on like what people would respond to me with and whatnot. And I took that script and I sent it over to the virtual assistants that I hired on Upwork. And then I hired about eight or nine of them because I had experience working with virtual assistants before. I knew that usually you have to hire like six or eight and then maybe one or two would be good, uh, which turned out to be the case. And so they were cold calling for me during the day. And then we saw that it was picking up a lot quicker than it was, you know, than in any other buzz business that I started before. So I was like, okay, this thing works. Uh, I decided to quit my job in January, 2020. And then from there, uh, we took it from doing, you know, just starting out to doing 15 to 20 deals a month now. What, what other business were you, were you doing to uh, incorporate virtual assistants with? Uh, so I was running a digital marketing agency. I had some virtual agents, uh, virtual assistants kind of working there. Uh, I was running a drop shipping store as well, and that was doing a decent volume. So I had virtual assistants there and even for like retail arbitrage, when I would go buy things, um, at Goodwill and flip them on eBay, uh, and I needed some like product work or listing work to be done, I would hit them up for services like that. Now you're, you're getting the leads. Are you the one personally going out there to close them? Cause I mean, you're living in California there, mm -hmm. I mean, in the Midwest. So how are you closing leads or they, what was the process there? So because we are in California, we're far, far away from the Midwest. We had to make this entire system virtual. And so, all our contracts sent virtually. Uh, we have a CRM that keeps track of everything. We have, uh, yeah, we have team, uh, we have boots on the ground that can help us if we need anything in those markets. So for like, Hey, this person wants to sign in person that we know exactly who to go out, you know, who to send out to get those contracts signed, but really everything is done virtually, which really, really helped us because in March of 2020, that's when COVID started hitting. And we're like, oh man, like what's going to happen? We just started a company. I quit my job. Like what's going to happen? But then turns out starting out our company as like a virtual real estate company really helped us because we were already transitioned there. So we didn't have to do anything different. Um, and so things actually started picking up even more during the pandemic. How did you work your margins because I mean, some of these properties could be really run down mm -hmm. without seeing the properties. How are you working your margins there? Was it just worst case scenario kind of going on that assumption or what would you do there? So we spoke with uh, the sellers, right? We, we asked the sellers a few questions and based on those questions or based on those answers by the sellers, we put them in our CRM and then it kind of spits out a number that we can go ahead and offer the seller. And so once we agree on that price, then we go back to an investor and say, Hey, I have this property for you. Um, this, you know, we got the property, let's say for maybe $50,000 and then we would sell it to an investor for 60,000. And so we'd make the spread in between, which is that $10,000. And then the investor can you know, either fix and flip it or just hold it or burn the property. But we make sure that they can still make money on their end. So it's a win-win situation for everyone. Well, what if the, the homeowner and I mean, doesn't have them all the time, but what if they uh, say stuff that's maybe not necessarily correct being the condition of the property? 
Yeah, so we that's why we do the inspections as well to make sure that all the conditions in the property are kind of laid out. Uh, obviously, when we send the inspector, if the seller's like, hey, it's tenanted, but there's no one there, then we'll know if it's vacant or not. Uh, we try to get as much information as possible in addition to that. So we ask them for like rent rolls. We ask for other uh, you know additional information about the property if we can and documentation to provide it. If possible, a lot of times, these owners, these sellers, they manage the properties themselves. And that's kind of why they, most of the time they want to sell it off because they're like, I can't manage the property myself. It's too much work. They didn't have a property manager in place. So sometimes, you know, they don't have the rent rules and whatnot. And so they would sometimes send like a screenshot of their bank account that they got the check from last time, or if it's in cash, cash is the toughest because there's no way we can tell. Um, but if it's close to the end of the month, they'll just take a picture saying, Hey, I look at the mail. I got this is cash. And so those are some things that we do. Um, we try to get as much information from the seller as possible. Um, you know, with the documents that provide, uh, some proof, but you know, it's, it's not always the case that they're going to be hundred percent truthful. And that's something that investors run into anyway. What do you feel has been your, your, your biggest struggle in kind of building this, building this brand, building this company? Uh, so this, I love systems and processes. So that's what helped us grow to where we are currently. But the toughest part I have to say is the, the hiring of people, because, you know, everyone's a little bit different. Each individual person's a little bit different. And because we're doing this all virtually as well, it, it's not, I can't micromanage. I don't want to micromanage, but you know, sometimes you're like, Hey, has this thing been completed? Is this, uh, has, have you finished this task? And you know, those are things that you all have to take care of virtually because you're not in an office together. So those are the most, I think that's the toughest thing that we have to encounter. Um, but I'm learning more and more as I go. And I think it's becoming easier the more people I hire. And now we have a team of like 15 to 16 people. So, uh, we're only hoping to grow that even more. So let's say we're talking in five years from now. Um, where, where are you going to be? Where's your company going to be? So five years from now, I would love to be doing like a hundred plus deals a month. Uh, we also have started networking with big institutional investors. So we're feeding a lot of deals to them. So not only the retail investors who maybe are buying the first property, or maybe they have a few, but want to increase their real estate investments and their deal flow. Uh, but so we're hoping that we'll create more partnerships with them so that we can go ahead and continue feeding those deals to these institutional investors and also networking with turnkey companies and fix and flip companies so that we can provide them with deals as well. If, if someone's listening right now and they want to be on your uh, guys Rolodex of, of uh, opportunities or even a homeowner that's looking to uh, get a cash offer, what's the best way of them reaching out to you? Yeah, if they go to rocketoffer.com, they can go ahead and contact us and we will more, we'll be more than happy to be in touch. And Rocket Offer is spelled R-O-C-K-E-T-O-F-F-R. Um, so without the E on the offer. Yeah. And, uh, the show notes will have all the information. I mean, I guess one last question would, if someone's listening right now and they go, you know what, um, Hayato, he made it sound so, so easy. Mm -hmm. What's some, um, insight, I guess, or feedback that you could talk to that young investor that's looking to get into the business. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I always like to say like, it's simple, but it's not easy because the processes to get there are quite simple. You cold call, you text, you send postcards to the sellers to see if they're interested to sell. And then once they're interested to sell, you send a purchase and sale agreement. And then from there, once they agree on that price, you sell, you sign it, send it over to the title company, and then you find an investor and then bring that assignment contract you signed with the investor to the title company. And then the title company takes care of that for you. And so the step-by-step uh, process is quite simple, but you really need to be consistent. You really need to be hustling to get those deals. And so I wouldn't say that part is easy. And for most people listening, I would say that don't be too, don't be scared to fail because I failed a lot and I don't really look at them as failures because you learn something new from it every time. And then the more and more you run into issues that you didn't know about, the more and more you can go quicker and come up with solutions faster for you and your company. So I think just starting out, once you do a little bit of your homework and you kind of understand how everything works, just dive right into it. And then you will find a solution to it as you go and move forward in your journey. What were some of those failures that you kind of learned through? Oh man, we had a lot. <laughs> so for example, like we weren't collecting earnest money with our investors. So at the end of closing, we're like, oh, um, this person backed out. We didn't get anything to show for it. The seller is now there and we are not able to sell a property for them, which is horrible for us. I, I always feel bad when we can't sell a property for the homeowner because you know most of the time they're in a distressed situation. So they need their home sold quick and we're their solution. And so for me, I always want to make sure that every deal gets sold. And so if an investor pulls, you know, uh, if they decide to ghost us at closing, then that really hurts us. And if we don't have any earnest money from them, then that really hurts us because we can't be like, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, uh, here's some, here's a thousand dollar earnest money. I'm sorry to have wasted your time. And then we have something to keep for ourselves as well um, because they didn't move through, move forward with it. So that's something that we learned. Uh, there's other things that we learned, like making sure that the inspection period was there and we knew when the inspection period was because obviously without that inspection clause with the sellers um you don't get to back like with the inspection clause if you have it for let's say 10 to 15 days within those 10 to 15 days you can go ahead and do an inspection if the property is in a much worse condition than you thought it would be then you can back out of the contract with no obligations. So that's something that we, you know, took more seriously and are more careful of now than we were before. Has there ever been a situation where uh, a homeowner saw how much you sold the property for and they, but you got them locked in at a really low price and then they saw the, the difference in it that they got fairly angry, yelled, anything like that, or try to back out? We never had a seller try to back out once because they saw that. Oh, wow. So yeah, we never had that happen once just because we, they know the price that we agreed on. And as long as they get that number, they're usually very, very happy. And something that we recently started to do to 
make sure that doesn't happen because now we're doing a lot more volume. And if something like that does come up, then it can be a bottleneck in our process. So we have the title company split it into two separate HUDs. So the seller's HUD and then the buyer's HUD. So the seller's yeah. HUD won't show like what we make on it or what we're actually selling it for. It just shows that they're going to get paid that amount and that's it. And on the buyer side, it shows our assignment fee and what we're selling it to the investors for. Makes sense. Well, thank you for, for being here. Appreciate that. Hopefully everyone listening got some, got some great nuggets. I mean, I know being in the, the real estate field, I get people all the time that are looking to, to start to get into the investing. I think you said it really eloquently about the process. Um, if anyone's listening is looking to get into it, go to, uh, go to the business, um, go to the show notes. All the information is right there. Uh, please subscribe, please share, and hope you guys uh, follow your path. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.